Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up, the Hallmark Channel show When Calls the Heart continues to be popular and I had a chance to chat again with its creator, Brian Bird, along with Michelle Cox. You'll be hearing from a discussion about the latest devotional book based on the series. Then from Grove City College, some comments from Professor David Ayers, who explores God's intent for marriage and why it is such a foundational institution in our society. And exploring how technology could shape the future, especially in the areas of religious freedom and limitations on Christians' expression, novelist Travis Thrasher shares a preview of his latest book. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, He's a longtime writer and first-time author of a novel. David Rawlings talks about his modern-day parable based around three people who had their baggage mixed up and met a unique individual when they tried to reclaim it. Finally, it's constitutional attorney Rita Dunaway. She gives insights regarding the proper role of the federal government under the Constitution and the biblical role of government. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. The television series Wind Calls the Heart enters its sixth season this month. The popular Hallmark series, based on the books by Christian author Jeanette Oak, has acquired a loyal fan base. Members of that group of fans were involved in submitting material for the latest in the series of When God Calls the Heart devotional books, authored by series creator and executive producer Brian Bird and Michelle Cox of Just 18 Summers, who has written for Todd Starnes of Fox News. The latest devotional book is called When God Calls the Heart to Love, 30 Heartwarming Devotions from Hope Valley. Here now are Brian and Michelle. We do the devotionals first, and we go through the episodes, and we find the God moments that are woven throughout the episodes, and then we do a devotional with those. We add a verse of scripture, a prayer. Uh, In this one, we have a way to put love into action, so we give them ideas for that. We have some questions for reflection. And then we invited the Hardys to send us their stories about love. And not just, you know, sweetheart love, but sibling love and communities and churches and all of that kind of thing. And they sent us some amazing stories. I know I sat and wiped tears away many, many times while I was reading through them. And so we've woven all of that together and... I've I've loved all of our books that we've done, but there's something really special about this one. Well, Brian, as you sifted through some of these stories uh, with respect to the uh, preparation for the When God Calls the Heart to Love book, tell me about a couple of stories, if you would, that that stood out or maybe some storylines that stood out to you. Well, um, you know, there were so many uh, beautiful stories stories of not just romantic love that came into us from the Hardys, but of family love and community love. And uh, I just love the fact that the values in the show seem to be, uh, you know, resonating with all the fans of the uh, fans of the show. And then those who participated in our book began to reflect those same values back in the stories that they remembered uh, about their families and about their loved ones. And, and even about going into homeless shelters and, and, and the love that emanated out of those places. See, because the love portion of this book is not just about romantic love. Yes, of course, that's an important feature of When Calls the Heart, the TV show. But we, we really believe that love is 
sort of cures everything, Bob. Uh, love is the cure for everything that ails us in our culture. Mm. And, um, and Hope Valley has become a place where, where those themes of love, of sacrifice, of courage, of nobility, of redemption and resurrection and, and, and forgiveness all emanate and, and revolve around that word love. And uh, so the Hardys are reflecting that in the stories that they submitted to us for, for the, you know, for the devotional. And uh, we were so pleased to be, able, to be able to include so many of them. And um, I just love going back through the book and reading them uh, myself because what it does for me is that it reinforces the fact that we made the right choice here uh, for this, this third devotional to really focus in on love themes. And uh, it, it's been a blessing, and we're so excited that it's now out and uh, circulating and, and, and folks are able to participate in it. Book four in the When God Calls the Heart devotional series is called When God Calls the Heart to Love. And you have stories that have been submitted by fans of the program. And you have 30 chapters and you have quotes, Bible verses, devotional readings, questions for reflection. And Michelle also, and you know, you think about these themes and as Brian was talking about the the whole theme of love that's woven through this book. And also, as you were saying, people resonating with the program that shared the values that are reflected in the television program set in Hope Valley. So there's there's an element of resonating with the values, but also living out those values. So as I understand it, there are what you might call some love in action ideas that are present within this book. There are, and, and, you know, we tie them into the stories, and, you know, so we, we suggest ways that people can go out and put love into action. Brian Bird and Michelle Cox here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website whengodcallstheheart.com. Next up, it's David Ayers, professor of sociology in the Alva J. Calderwood School of Arts and Letters at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. Recently, he discussed with me subjects that he includes in the book, Christian Marriage, A Comprehensive Introduction. From that conversation, this is David Ayers. Well, marriage is a creational ordinance, and the, the, the Christian church, both Catholic and Protestant, has, has understood this for, for a very long time. And it used to be, and it still is true in many communions, that a part of the wedding ceremony is reminding people of God's purposes for marriage. And... Um, God had foreknowledge of the fall. So in a sense, what you'd say is that, as the Anglican Church said in its classic statement, marriage was created in, and they, they put it, man's innocency. In other words, it, it was created before the fall. We were designed for it. It was designed for us with God's purposes in mind. But God, looking ahead, also was was putting those very same purposes in as a bulwark against the effects of sin and the fall uh, for us, and so the, uh, the the modern idea of marriage that we basically make it up that every you know now even sex you know our biological sex supposedly we decide what that is we construct it for ourselves, but this is something that we enter into we don't make it up whole hog we don't we don't we don't set the conditions for it. it is a covenant that God witnesses and that and that is also accompanied by human witnesses in which we. We, we commit ourselves to, to 
to upholding the obligations, the expectations of marriage and, and embracing God's purposes for marriage. So as we communicate marriage to a culture that either has redefined it or rejected it, or you have people that enter into a relationship that doesn't line up with God's principles and they call it marriage, how is it that we as believers in Christ can really reclaim this institution that God ordained since, well, the very beginning? Well, I think the first thing is is that we, what I tell people all the time is that we're being clobbered in the culture wars, but we're also we're also hurting at home in our own marriages mm. and family. And obviously, that's not true for everyone. But the statistics for evangelicals in marriage uh, are not great. Um, the uh, obviously, people that attend church regularly uh, do much better. But then, at least forty percent of evangelicals don't don't even attend church on a weekly basis. So. Our leaders are are unable to lead people who aren't there to be taught and instructed in these things, and so. But the thing too is that we've also we don't have a language of natural law, and we need to somehow reclaim that. That that when, when the reformers and and when the church historically has said this is a creational ordinance, what we're also saying is that it was built for the human race, and so as we reach out to the culture as a whole, look, everything that exists as a moral precept in the Bible does not need to be translated and applied as a law to be enforced by the state. I understand that. But with regards to the general parameters of what marriage is and what it's designed to do structurally, uh, the um, we serve our neighbors by promoting that in the larger, larger world as a whole. A.A. A. Hodge in his commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, the great Princeton Seminary theologian, uh, said because this is creational, and because it has to do with the basic structure of the human race, Christians as citizens ought to seek to promote this understanding of marriage in civil society for the good of their neighbors. And and we don't have to be, uh, you know, the, one of the terms that people are familiar with is theonomy, and when you talk about applying biblical precepts in the civil law, Oftentimes what I'll get is, well, what you're doing is you're talking about something called theonomy. No, I'm not talking about theonomy at all. I'm talking about understanding that, that I'm to love my neighbor as myself. As a citizen, I'm to serve the society in which God has placed me. And, and I, in doing that, I cannot ignore what God says the human race is, what God says the design is, and what God says people need, it, just as would be also true for uh, something like abortion. If, if God declares the unborn child, and he does, to be a human being, then I cannot do anything but promote civil society treating the unborn child as a human being. And, and I, th I think in marriage, we have very much the same concepts at play. David Ayers here on The Intersection. You can find him on Facebook under David J. Ayers, A-Y-E-R-S, author. Also, his Twitter feed is at Mal L. Dill's friend. That's M-A-L-E-L-D-I-L-S, friend. This is The Intersection with novelist Travis Thrasher. He talked with me about his latest book, which is set in 2038, it's called American Omens, The Coming Fight for Faith, dealing with issues surrounding religious liberty, including the use of technology to eliminate freedom of expression. Here now is Travis Thrasher. Yeah, the premise is, is 20 years in the future, and not only is um, Christianity under attack, but in a lot of ways um, it is outlawed. And 
I imagine, obviously, this is all just, um, it's a work of fiction, so it's imagining what could happen, but I took it very uh, seriously, and, and, and I tried to do as realistic of a depiction of the future as I could, and it's not some dystopian kind of government 1984-like um, novel where that I don't see happening. What really in the novel I picture just as culture and as this country, as things just continue to get, progress and get worse, and the pendulum swinging. You know, the the novel's not a political novel, but I've referred to certain pieces in the political. Uh, stratosphere happening, which ends up making things a lot worse for believers. And so, um, so, you know, as I was writing about it, the premise was one where the publisher had actually pitched it to me, you know, to write something about the persecuted Christian church. And so that was kind of an initial premise. And then I was the one who, you know, okay, let me see what kind of story I could wrap around this. But as I kept writing it, it, it kind of, it, it, it wasn't a very happy experience writing about this sort of thing, because the more I learned about technology, the more I started to really get into this, you know, world of imagining what could be happening. Um, it, it was honestly a little scary, because, um, you know, as, as you said, we continue to see um, Christianity and the, the values and beliefs, um, those are constantly being attacked, whether it is very, very obvious ways or it's more subtle ways. And I tried to address both of that in the book. So tell me what you imagined that life would be like in 2038. Just give us a, a few snapshots uh, of this <laughs> this universe that yeah. you created there almost 20 years from now. Well, the the big... Thing and big kind of piece of technology that I imagined is um, I never refer to it. Um, there's this thing we all often joke about, like, oh, we're we're going to one day have a, a brain ship, a brain implant or something like that. But the technology already is getting to the point where they're doing things that are similar to that sort of that's a, a very kind of simplistic um, idea, but I imagine that everybody basically has, um, instead of carrying a smartphone like we all do, it it's the technology of that is on is within us. It's not in our um, head, but I tried to do it in a very realistic way where it's you know it's a part of us. So these things that we now take for granted, like a cell phone or talking to Siri and all of that sort of stuff. I imagine that just 20 years from now. And, and part of that was, is this even possible? Because I didn't want to write a book where people are flying and you're going to Mars and, you know, time travel. I mean, I didn't want to make it pure science fiction. I really wanted it to be accurate. But this piece of technology that I, um, you know, I imagine it, it's a, it's a real central part of the, the storyline, because at the same time, what I've imagined is the country, uh, as I said, the political kind of pendulum has swung where um, the uh, I don't make it a, a, 
you know, the Republicans and the Democrats, you know, I, I really just refer to our, our government has become really um, downright hateful and antagonistic toward Christianity, but toward true, authentic Christianity. And that's the thing that I'm exploring. Travis Thrasher here on The Intersection. His website is travisthrasher.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on The Intersection Podcast. Also, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. And there is a link to video content. You can find The Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app. And full conversations are available through a number of apps, including iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and Spotify. Learn more when you go to meetinghouseonline.info or the programming section at faithradio.org. Moving along now, it's longtime writer and first-time novelist David Rawlings, who discussed his book, The Baggage Handler, which he considers to be a modern-day parable about harmful things people carry with them through life. Here now from that conversation, it's David Rawlings. There's three characters. So... Um, each of them has taken a flight on a very important trip. So the, the first character, David, uh, not named after me, by the way, um, has come to, he's flown to the city for a showdown meeting with head office so he can save his branch and his job. Then there's uh, Jillian, who is also not named after me. Uh, she is, is flying into the city to go to her niece's wedding and she is not looking forward to it at all. And the third one, Michael, as a young man who's being forced into taking a, a track scholarship by his father. And, and the premise of the book is that in their rush to leave the airport, they grab the wrong suitcase. And when they, they go to switch their suitcases back, they go to a baggage depot in the middle of the city. They meet a young guy called the baggage handler, and he shows them that there's far more in their baggage than they remember packing, and they have to deal with it before they can leave. So... I guess the, the premise of the book is, is one of, of dealing with what we have in our life. One of, one of the things that, that I'm writing and I'm enjoying writing is, is the idea of a parable. It's, mm-hmm. I, I, I love the, the stories in the New Testament of the way Jesus engaged with people. The fact that he was delivering universal truth, but in a way that people could, could understand it. So back, back in that day, people necessarily couldn't, or maybe they couldn't, understand the concept of eternity or forgiveness or or redemption but they they all had lost a coin or they all had lost a sheep or they all knew someone whose big brother had gone away to a different city and and blown the inheritance so i guess i'm doing a similar thing with the concept of baggage because when when i was researching it and and even just listening to people and talking to counselors who, who are in this field the concept of of carrying baggage is almost universal. Hmm. You know, there's always there's always something that that is holding us back that we'd be very well advised to deal with. And for some people, that's really really difficult. So the premise of the book is aimed aimed at, at, at looking a bit deeper into life when it comes to the things that might be holding us back. 
What do you find are maybe the the types of baggage that people are are commonly carrying that perhaps you wanted to address a little bit more deeply in this novel? That's a great question. Uh, one one of the things I did when I researched was I wanted to to find out what are the the most common things that we carry, and I've ma- I've made the the three characters deal with those things, and one of those is unforgiveness. One of one of the things that's common to all of us is, is people have done things to to us all in our past that we struggle to move on from, and, and in many cases it's because what happened was unfair. So one of the types of baggage is unforgiveness. The second one is about uh, the the baggage of self-worth, the the number of people who I speak to who are, you can just see how wonderful they are and the potential they have, but they just don't believe it. And usually that, that baggage has come about because of things that have happened to them in the past or things that people have said or a particular situation. In some cases, it's even the pecking order in the family in which they were born into. And the third one is is the story of living someone else's dream. There, are, mm. it's it's a fairly, it's going to say common. It's it's probably, yeah, it's it's something that that I see a lot is is people who are living the dream of someone else, whether that's you know a parent who is pushing them in a direction, or you know a spouse that's carrying them off in a different direction, or even friends that are that are carrying them away from where they probably should be. So those are. Look, I, I could have written a, a story with 10 characters in it based on the research oh, that yeah. I was doing and the types of things that, that slow people down. It would have been a really hard read. But um, those were the three ones that uh, that I ended up focusing on. David Rawlings here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to davidrawlings.com.au. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Rita Dunaway. She's a constitutional attorney and national legislative strategist for the Convention of States Project. In our recent conversation, she gave a review of President Trump's February 5th State of the Union message and shared comments relative to her book, Restoring America's Soul, Advancing Timeless Conservative Principles in a Wayward Culture. Here now is Rita Dunaway. You know, I think that is really the biggest problem when it comes to the, you know, political um, culture of our nation today is that people have stopped asking that question that you just put in front of us. What is the role of government, which really should precede any type of public policy discussion? Because something can be a great idea. It can be a great, you know, great idea to um, have paid family leave, for instance, which was one of the things that President Trump talked about. But is that the role of the federal government to mandate that businesses have to provide that. And under the Constitution, it's not the role of the federal government to do that. So I think we need to get back to that place where we're asking, and as you pointed out, starting as Christians from the biblical perspective, what does the Bible say about the role of government in a society? And then as Americans, what does our Constitution say about it? And we are so blessed as Americans, that our Constitution does set forth a very much a biblical um, principle about what the role of government is in our country. And we need to get back to that. Government today has become an idol, and that's a huge mm. problem. 
Well, you've written the book called Restoring America's Soul. Share with me what your inspiration for that book was. Well, you know, I've been involved in the conservative movement for a, a, what I consider to be a long time now. And I've just, in, in my direct experiences, I've had a lot of opportunities to observe um, conservatives doing public policy well and doing it poorly. And it's mostly in the way we talk to people about it. I've noticed how negative we've become, even as conservatives. And I know that a lot of that is a reaction to the negativity and hostility from the other side. But I really just wanted to remind other conservatives and especially Christians about the importance of being winsome in the way we talk about our positions on on issues, and especially with people who don't agree with us, being winsome, being gracious, but always still advocating for truth. The life issue is now front and center. There, there may be a golden opportunity for Christians and conservatives to really seize on that with respect to communicating a pro-life position. What do you think? Well, I would have to agree with that, and I would recommend that people, if they have a chance, go to thestream.org and check out my column on that very topic, which is up this week. Um, It was just horrifying to hear what went on, yes, right here in my home state of Virginia on this issue. And what I think we need to be doing, again, always graciously, always as respectfully as we can, but we need to be pointing out the hypocrisies of the abortion activists and those who support legal abortion in this country. I mean, it was appalling to me to see both Delegate Kathy Tran, who introduced that late-term abortion bill, and then Governor Northam, when they were caught and when they were pressed on well, you know, aren't you basically saying you support infanticide? They're, they're horrified by that idea. And yet when you look at their actual words, when you see what they're actually saying and advocating, there's no escaping that. And then we need to press them further and say, okay, so if you're saying that it's not okay to kill a baby once the delivery process has begun, then what's the difference an hour earlier? Mm -hmm. Is there really a difference? And I think we need to press those questions on them until we get an answer. Rita Dunaway here on The Intersection. Learn more at RitaMDunaway.com. You can find out more about the Convention of States Project at ConventionOfStates.com. Well, we are just about done with this edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection Podcast is also found through the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet through the faithradio.org website. Also through the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. And there is a link to video content. 
You can find full conversations from the Meeting House program by going to a number of different apps, including iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Learn more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.